much for, for letting me be up here. Uh, if I could, I'm just going to pause and pray as we, as we jump in here. God, we recognize this morning our need for you. Um, Father, we want to hear from you. We want to commune with you. And we want to be changed by your word. And so, Spirit, we ask that you would ready our hearts, give us ears to hear. Uh, and as we read the Holy Scriptures, would you change us and make us more into the likeness of Christ and cause our hearts to rise with great affection for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, uh, stand with me. I'm going to read from our passage today out of the Gospel of Luke. It'll be in Luke chapter 1. This passage is called the Song of Mary or the, Mag- the Magnificat, starting in verse 46. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. We are a week away from Christmas, which means we're starting to get that standard question from neighbors and coworkers. What are you doing for the holidays? Are you traveling? What what traditions do you guys observe? And this morning, I want to ask a little bit more intimate question. I want to ask this morning, as we look at this passage, what will our Christmas worship look like this year? What will our worship look like this Christmas season? Or as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor, put it more directly and bluntly, he said, who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? Probably not the phrasing that we would use with uh, an acquaintance or a coworker, very direct, but a good question to consider. And Bonhoeffer goes on to answer the question that he raises. He says, Whoever lays down all power, all honor, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, all individualism beside the manger, whoever remains lowly and lets God alone be high. Today's passage called the Magnificat, famous passage. It's called the Magnificat. That word is taken from the Latin, which means magnify. It means to make much of, to extol, to glorify. This passage historically has been sung by churches all over the world. Uh, I asked Colin if I could sing it this morning instead of reading it. He had me rehearse a few bars and said, no, I am not allowed to do that. So we stuck to the straight and narrow on the reading. But as we look at this passage, we are joined to and rooted in the common experience of God's people. The hopes and fears joys, and ultimately the worship of the Christian community in every generation. It's one of those neat passages that gives us a liturgical connection to the global church. And this morning as we look at it, I want to suggest that we take this song of Mary and make it a pattern for our Christmas worship this year. If you were here a few months ago, you may remember a guy named Rob Morris spoke. Rob was the president of Love 146, and he shared a word of thanks to his parents. He took a moment to thank them for their courage and bravery for conceiving him and giving him life because he was born at the height of the Cold War when a lot of people were asking very reasonably, 
Who could bring a child into this world? Nuclear holocaust seemed intimate. The USSR and America were at each other's throats. Uh, the economy was flagging. And Rob's parents already had a couple of children. They were struggling to provide for those kids. And so they had serious debate in their family as to whether they would have another child. And Rob said, thank you for your courage and foresight and in giving me life. And it reminded me when he shared that story of what Jesus says in Luke 21. You may remember that Jesus is foretelling of the end times, the end of the human era on earth. And he says, circumstantially, things are going to be very bleak on that day. He says, in fact, they're going to be so dire that I would say, woe to you women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days. Jesus says, there's a time that's going to be so circumstantially difficult, so dire, so dark, that I would, it would be pitiable for a woman to be in that vulnerable position of having a life in their womb or having a young infant to care for. That's how difficult it's going to be. But if we look at the context of Mary, the, the circumstances into which she sings, they're actually not that different. Recall that, Ru- that Jerusalem at this time is under the rule of an oppressive Roman occupational army. Herod, who is the regional authority, is notorious for brutality and hatred, even towards his own family. And soon he's going to put out an edict that is going to lead to what is called the massacre of the innocents, the infanticide of the firstborn son of every family in the region that will threaten, though not take, Jesus' life. And Mary, as Jeff mentioned the last couple of weeks, this young, youngish teenage girl who's pregnant and not married. And so at risk of abandonment by her fiance, who knows that they have not consummated their relationship, and yet here is Mary with child. What is he supposed to do with that? And Mary living in a highly conservative culture that doesn't know exactly what's going on with Mary and Joseph, but knows that she's not married and she is pregnant. And in that day, it was just, it was unacceptable. And so she's facing ostracism and critique from her own community. It is a difficult circumstance. And in light of the tremendously difficult circumstances that she faces, Mary's song demonstrates a completely counterintuitive, countercultural, and, and maybe even counter-rational response. Praise and thanksgiving. It's what that great Christmas hymn, O Holy Night, captures when it says, Long lay the world in sin, in error, pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks and new and glorious morn. And some of us this morning perhaps see circumstantial parallel to what Mary was facing. Things are kind of bleak. Fear is palpable. War looms. Mass shootings proliferate. Terrorism spread. Racism persists. And yet, despite all of that, On this third Sunday of Advent, we are led by the song of Mary into joyful worship. A weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. As we look at her song, I want us to make three observations in hopes that they will inform our own pattern of worship this Christmas season. So first, what we see in Mary's worship is that Mary's worship begins with a heart that rejoices in God. Look at verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked down on the humble estate of his servant. And behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. 
her worship comes from the heart. She uses the words soul and spirit, signifying that deepest place within her, that place where the heart and the mind coalesce. And this heart rejoicing worship comes, notice, from the recognition of her humble position in the world. She notes that God has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And seeing her station clearly helps Mary to exult in God and what he's done for her. In other words, she doesn't have a sense of entitlement to God's grace or gifts. She is not under the illusion that she is self-sufficient or okay on her own. She recognizes that she is lowly and in need very much of God. In order for our hearts to fully exult in God in the way that Mary's does, we must accurately recognize our true position in the universe as well. Jesus says in Revelation 3 that that true position in the universe for you and for me without God is that we are those who are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, and we don't realize it. And it can be difficult for us to keep in mind that reality when we live in 21st century North America, especially when we live in that enclave of wealth and privilege that's called the Woodlands or Spring North Houston. We are some of the most privileged people in the history of the world. And because of our pervasive comfort, we can easily forget what Jesus has communicated there in Revelation 3. You are deeply in need of God at every moment for every breath, whether or not you recognize it. And Christmas worship we see begins with a humble heart that rejoices in God. The Swiss reformer John Calvin wrote eloquently on the importance of worship that emanates from the heart in his commentary on this passage. Listen to what Calvin says. He says, But as hypocrites sing the praises of God with an open mouth, unaccompanied by any affection of the heart, Mary says that she praises God from an inward feeling of the mind. In other words, that deepest place within her. And certainly they who pronounce his glory not from the mind, but with the tongue alone, do nothing more than profane his holy name. And we have to be cautious, especially during this season of the high holidays of Christmas to Easter, that we aren't just going through motions, that we aren't just showing up at church because culturally someone told us that's what we're supposed to do or because that's what we grew up doing. If we just come and go through the motions and acknowledge God with, with empty words from our lips alone, we do nothing more than profane his name. And so we have to be careful that we actually engage our hearts and live lives that are marked by affections that are stirred by the gospel of Jesus, by this reality that God has come to save us. If there's no affection in our heart as we go through these motions of worship, then we need to beg God to awaken us, to change us. Mary's song and the Christmas celebration for us is about joy breaking through sorrow. Reminds me of what uh, Jesus says in John 16. You may recall as he's, he's telling the disciples that he is going to be killed. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but, listen, but your sorrow will turn into joy. That is the Christian gospel, sorrow turning into joy. And for us to engage in true Christian worship, in true Christmas worship, we have to have eyes that see both the sorrow of our context and the joy that's breaking through. The Magnificat is not a song extolling a good situation that's getting better. Rather, it's about a broken reality being healed, of fallen people being 
rescued, hopelessness and sorrow turning into joy. The Christmas song signals a tonal change in the human experience. It signifies a tectonic shift in the lives and the fates of men and women. It's as Jeff spoke about last week, looking at Elizabeth. It's the barrenness of Elizabeth becoming the birthday of John. It's the murder of firstborn sons by evil men becoming the salvation of evil men by a firstborn son. And if we aren't paying attention to and suffering with Elizabeth and her barrenness, then we won't fully understand the miraculous joy that accompanies the birthday of John. And if we're not paying attention to and suffering with the parents of the murdered infants, we won't fully appreciate the miraculous deliverance that comes through an infant. And if we aren't paying attention to the physical and spiritual poverty that marks the human experience, friends, neighbors, family, coworkers, maybe us, maybe our top five, then we won't fully rejoice in God with all of our hearts and the miracle of what he gives us in Christmas. We must see both the sorrow of our context and the joy that's breaking through. We have to be a weary world rejoicing for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. So Christmas worship first begins with a heart that exalts and rejoices in God. And then secondly, we see that Mary's Christmas worship continues with a mouth that declares the goodness of God. Look at verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. So Christmas worship must flow from the heart, but it also must proceed from the mouth. Jesus says in Luke 6 that from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So just because Christmas worship should not come from the mouth alone does not mean that it should not come from the mouth at all. Again here, listen to what Calvin says. The name of God is holy because it is entitled to the highest reverence. And whenever the name of God is mentioned, listen, whenever the name of God is mentioned, it ought immediately to remind us of his adorable majesty. When you hear the name of God mentioned, does it elicit thoughts of his adorable majesty? That can be tough for some of us, especially guys sometimes. That's a little bit flowery language, adorable majesty. That's like how you describe like a, an infant's outfit, right? It's adorable. Calvin is saying, when we hear the name of God, it ought to inspire in our minds and spark our affections to adore him. Oh, come let us adore him. And the proper response to that recognition is to speak with our mouth a declaration of the goodness of God. There's value in us praying and aloud together. That's why each week when we worship, we pray through the Lord's Prayer, or at least when Jeff is here and we don't have a guest speaker who's negligent and doesn't do the Lord's Prayer. But on normal Sundays, we do it and there's value in it. There's value in us singing worship songs together. There's value in us reading the scriptures aloud and no matter how much you like or don't like the, the song choices or how much you like or, or in some instances don't like the preaching, there's value in us using our voice to declare the goodness of God. In Jeremiah 15, God speaks these words. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. If you repent, I will restore you that you may serve me. And listen. If you utter worthy words and not worthless words, you will be my spokesman. What kind of words are you giving yourself to? What kind of language is emanating from your mouth? Is it gossip, backbiting, slander? 
criticism, coarse joking, insults, inane subjects, and triviality? What are you giving your voice to this Christmas season? I may have shared this before, but as part of our bedtime routine, I share four things every night with my children. And my, my hope is that because these four things reflect the heart of God for us as his children, and they certainly mark my heart as a father towards my children, that as I communicate these every night, my, my kids will hear them and, and internalize them and remember them and learn about how God feels about them from these things. And so every night as we go to bed, these are my, these are my attempt anyway, at my last words uh, with my kids. So the other night I'm, I'm tucking in my oldest son and I get down real close. I'm, I'm hugging him. And I get down kind of face to face with him. And my last opportunity to communicate him before he goes to sleep. And so I share the four things. I love you. I'm for you. I enjoy you. And I am so proud of you. And now it's his last opportunity to speak to me. This meaningful time of the day. So he gives a brief pause. He hears and then he responds and says, yeah. But today I was playing at school with Pokemon and my friends and they shot a fireball at me. And that's okay, right? I mean, that's, that's age appropriate that he would be thinking about that and saying those things. But there's an asymmetry there, isn't there, right? I, I'm trying to speak profound words that declare the goodness of God and communicate my love as a father and the heavenly father's love for him. And he's talking to me about Pokemon. And, and what it reminds me of is that so many times in my life when I have opportunity to speak worthy words, instead I squander the opportunity and speak worthless words. The average person speaks 15,000 words per day, apparently. I, I read that online, so I, it's probably close to true. 15,000 words a day. The highest and best use for our limited opportunity each day is to speak worthy words. Words that proclaim the goodness of God. So what words, what words will you give yourself to this Christmas season? As you engage in Christmas worship, what will you give your tongue to? So first we see that a heart that exalts in God marks Mary's Christmas worship. And then we see that Mary's worship continues with a mouth that declares the goodness of God. And then finally we see that Mary's worship concludes with a mind that reflects on the promises of God. A mind that reflects on the promises of God. Look at verse 52. Mary sees a promise of an upside down kingdom. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. I read a book this year by a guy named Phil Knight. You might know that name. He's the founder of Nike. And before being a business mogul, he ran track at the University of Oregon. I presume he was slower than Pastor Jeff. I don't know if they ever raced. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. So, so this guy, Phil Knight, he runs track and then he goes on to become an accountant in process of starting Nike. And he shares this anecdote from his days as an athlete. He says, running track gives you a fierce respect for numbers because you are what your numbers say you are. Nothing more and nothing less. If I posted a bad time in a race, there might have been reasons. Injury, fatigue, a broken heart. But no one cared. My numbers in the end were all that anyone would remember. And that may be true in sports. And that may be true on a balance sheet. And that may be true when you take the SAT, but what we see here in Mary's song is the exact opposite. You are not what your numbers say you are. More than that, it actually says that whatever your numbers say you are might actually get completely turned upside down in the kingdom of heaven. It's what theologians call the eschatological reversal. 
which is just kind of a fancy way of saying what the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air said more simply, that your life might get flip turned upside down. (laughs) The rich will be made poor and the poor rich. The high will be brought low and the low lifted up. The first will be last. The last will be first. The promise that Mary reflects on here is that of an upside down kingdom. But if we're not careful, we will start to carry our numbers like a label, like a badge, like an identity. Which of your numbers do you spend most of your time identifying with? What do they produce in you? Do they produce pride? Do they produce shame? What numbers are you allowing yourself to be defined by? The numbers that make up your street address, your zip code, your income, your net worth, your age, your height, your weight, how many friends you have on Facebook or professional connections you have on LinkedIn, how many children you have or don't have, how many frequent flyer miles you have from your impressive job that requires you to fly to important places and meet with important people, or maybe the number of places that you've wanted to visit but never have because you can't afford it, the number of diplomas on your wall, the number of times you attend church each week, or the number of Bible studies you're a part of. There's so many numbers by which we could define ourselves. And Mary's song reminds us that unlike sports or balance sheets or the SAT, we are not merely what our numbers say we are. Our numbers do not define us. Our numbers don't determine our value or our worth or our future. Rather, the goodness of God in Christ takes all of our numbers and empties them of their power, turns them upside down and says, you are not what your numbers say you are. You are what I say you are. And if you're in Christ today, then God says that you are loved, you are blessed, you are forgiven, you are a son or a daughter. You are an heir of God the Father and a co-heir with Christ the King. That's what you are. I don't know if you've seen an upside down Christmas tree. I've got a picture of one here. These have become kind of hot in the last decade or so. Um, It's kind of an edgier modernist attempt at Christmas decor, I think. Uh, It's very disorienting to me. I don't personally like them. It's kind of what I think Christmas would look like if you had chronic vertigo. But, But they're hot. And listen, I'm, I promise you I'm the least fashionable person in here. So if I think they're not very cool, that actually means you should go get one like right now. I had pleats in my pants until like a week ago. So I am <laughs> not the guy to listen to on this kind of stuff. Some people say the upside down Christmas tree um, is actually ancient. That as early as the 8th century, Christians were using them to distinguish the symbol from the more common pagan symbol of the normal right side up tree. And that they used the upside down triangle to to image the nature of the Trinity. Regardless of its origin, if we wanted to see the world as Mary sees it, if we wanted to understand Christmas in the most fundamental way, I think we would be helped by setting up our Christmas tree like this. Because then every time we walked into the living room, we would remember what Mary is proclaiming here, that the structure of our world as we know it is not how things ultimately are going to be. In fact, it's all going to get flipped on its head And that long arc of change, that long arc of eschatological reversal started in earnest on the first Christmas as Jesus came. The promises of God include the promise of a coming kingdom that's going to be upside down. And the promises of God include the promise of faithfulness forever. Look at verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. 
God has made a foundational promise that the descendants of Abraham will number like the stars in the sky and they will live perpetually under his mercy. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 helpfully clarifies this point when he makes clear that it's not just the physical or familial descendants of Abraham who are children of the promise, but rather all who would proclaim the name of Jesus as Lord and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead. Those are the descendants of Abraham. Those are children of the promise. If you're here this summer, you may remember we spent four weeks looking at the life of David. And as we went through those stories, I quoted a lady named Sally Lloyd-Jones who wrote the children's storybook Bible. And she says of the whole Bible cover to cover, cover that every story whispers his name. That is, every story whispers the name of Jesus. And you may remember in that uh, series, we talked about a guy named Samuel. Samuel was a judge and prophet of Israel. If you read in 1 Samuel 2, you would see an account of Hannah. Hannah was Samuel's mother. When Hannah discovers that she is pregnant, she, like Mary, sings a song. And it's called, quite straightforwardly, Hannah's song. And if you were to read Hannah's song and put it right next to Mary's song, you would see that thematically they are incredibly similar. And some of the language is almost identical. And what we see in Hannah's song is God giving us a hint, a whisper, and, and maybe even a direct promise of deliverance of what is to come, of the salvation of God's people. And though Hannah's song brings hope in that foretelling, it doesn't bring total satisfaction because it doesn't give us all the relevant details that we would want. If someone is promising salvation, that's great, but you need to know some specifics for it to fully land in your heart, right? Like when and where and, and what condition will this salvation come? When I was 18, I was a senior in high school, about to graduate. I'd been working for an architect for a few years and over the time of my employment, I, I had come to really, really appreciate and enjoy his oldest daughter. And so I decided, you know what, I'd actually like to date this girl. And because I'm working for her dad, I think it, it's most appropriate if I go ahead and ask his permission if I can date her. So I uh, build up the courage one day at the end of the workday and I, I kind of slink into his office and I'm actually shaking a little bit, um, more nervous than I thought I would be. But I, I figure, look, this is kind of pro forma, right? I mean, I've been working for the guy for a couple of years. He knows me pretty well. Sure, I'm not what you might call traditionally handsome. I might not have good personal hygiene, but, you know, I show up to work on time. I'm fairly trustworthy. He's going to say, great, no problem. So I go in and I ask him, I say, sir, I really think highly of your daughter. I'd like your permission to date her. And his response, rather than saying, hey, that sounds great. You kids have a good time, was, hmm, I'm going to have to think about that. And so he sends me home. My work day is over. And I come back the next day. He has for me typed out single space, one page essay questions ranging from tell me about your dating history to please give me biblical examples as support for what you think biblical courtship and dating looks like to uh, what do you think is the proper role of a young man in a dating relationship. And he's going deep with these hard, hard hitting questions. And so I go home immediately, I take the sheet, and for the next four hours, I'm just knocking out responses to this thing. This is like my magnum opus. This is beautiful. I've got 10 pages of answers. I've got my Strong's Concordance out. I've got multiple versions of the Bible cross-referencing. I'm putting some original language in there. I'm thinking this guy for sure is going to be impressed by this, and for sure I'm going to be able to take out his daughter. And so he's kind of a late-night guy. I call him. It's about midnight, which is pretty audacious of me, but I know he's awake. So I call him and I say, listen, I've finished my essays. Do you mind if I bring them by? 
So I drop him by his house. He takes him. He bids me a good night. I go home and says nothing for a week. A week later, he calls me into his office. He says, he says, Christian, I've had an opportunity to review your answers and I am happy to let you know that I'm ready to have breakfast with you to discuss these further. <laughs> and so now I prepare myself for the early morning breakfast and over scrambled eggs, we go through uh, and he scrutinizes my responses. Uh, eventually he gives me the yes and I get to ask his daughter out. Four years later, we've been dating for four solid years and I'm ready now not to ask him to date his daughter, but to marry his daughter. And I think, well, certainly, we've been through the due diligence phase. He knows everything about me. I've spent Christmas at his house. He and I even shared a bed in Ireland one time. That's a different story for a different time. But the point is, he knows me. What else is there to talk about? So in January, we're about to, we're going to graduate from college in May. I mean, she's, new, she's an adult, right? She's going to be out in the world. And I ask his permission, sir, I'd like to marry your daughter. And I want to ask your permission. And he says, I would be very happy to discuss that. And so he sends me more essays. And over the next 12 months, we continue to discuss in more detail and greater depth what the proper approach and role would be for a Christian husband. Um, at the end of that time, he finally gives me the yes. Now, at the time, I, I, I was not a fan of his process at the time. Now that I have a daughter, I am really glad to have that, uh, that playbook. I mean, good luck, good luck to whoever thinks that they're going to date my daughter someday. When I got those yeses from him, those were not the end of the road. Those were not the fullness of my joy. They, they, were, they were the beginning of my joy. Those weren't those weren't the final answer for me. That just gave me confidence to see what was at the end of the tunnel, to know that I was headed in the right direction. What I didn't see down the tunnel at the time was a bunch of toddlers who would keep me up to my elbows in diapers for a decade. But sometimes things are in the tunnel that you don't anticipate, right? His yes was not the fullness of my joy. It was the beginning of my joy. In Hannah's song, we hear that the Messiah will come to rescue God's people. Great, but Hannah, when and where and in what condition? Great that you're going to raise up the lowly and cast down the proud. Great that God's going to make the rich poor and the poor rich and deliver people from oppression and barrenness. But that promise is only so encouraging outside of a specific context. And in Mary's song, we get the rest of the story. Hannah leaves us with questions, where and how. Mary gives us the answers here and now. He will come now in a manger in Bethlehem in the form of a little baby. The supernatural will become natural. The immortal will become mortal. The, the helper will become helpless in pursuit and rescue of his people. And every story whispers his name. Hannah whispers to us, Jesus will come. And Mary declares to us, Jesus is coming. At age 14 and by the power of the Holy Spirit, Mary was able to see what was happening. The, the fulfillment of God's promise was near. The kingdom was finally being established. And yet the kingdom here is only inaugurated, not consummated. God's kingdom is here in part, but not here in fullness. Mary's declaration is not hope fulfilled, but it's a hope still deferred. And so in the Advent season, we wait in eager expectation not only for Christ's first coming, but for his last coming. So if we're going to take Mary's song this year as a pattern for our worship, for our pattern of, Christ, of Christian worship during Christmas, first we will have hearts that rejoice in God with sincerity. We will use our mouths to declare the goodness of God and let our 
words be worthy words. And we will reflect on the promises of God in our life. And if we are, as Bonhoeffer put it, to celebrate Christmas correctly this year, we will remain lowly and let God alone be high. If you're new to church, if, if this is a new message to you, if the gospel, the good news of God rescuing his people and bringing reconciliation to broken people like you and me by the work of Jesus, if that's foreign to you, then let me just encourage you that this Christmas, what it means for you to worship correctly, to be lowly and let God alone be high, is to bow your knee at the throne of God and to whisper a prayer of faith that says, God, I believe that you exist and I believe that I have sinned against you and I I need Jesus and his work, his coming in the form of a baby, living a perfect life, dying on a cross for me. Let that be your declaration today. Let that be your worthy word and enjoy all the gifts and promises of what it means to be a co-heir of Christ in the kingdom of God. Let me pray for us as we close. God, we're grateful to you this morning that you have loved us to such a great extent that you are willing to send your son to be born under great trial in a manger and to take on flesh, rending the heavens and dwelling amongst us who are broken and needy. Jesus, thank you for obeying the Father in that call. God, today as we continue to worship, we ask that you would empower us by your spirit to be those who recognize our position in the world, recognize our need for you. God, would you help us to bow our knee before you in humility and to be content this Christmas that as we engage a pattern of worship that's informed by Mary's worship, that you would cause us to be men and women who remain lowly and allow you alone to be high. God, we can't do that apart from your help. Father, we need you. We need you to live lives that glorify you. We need you to animate our mouths to speak words that are high and holy and declare your goodness. We need you to call to our mind your great promises for us. And so, Father, we ask for these things with great trust and belief that you'll do them for your glory and for our good. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.